This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha in Caverns Deep below the metro area, it's our pleasure to welcome you to episode 686 of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Book Podcast. I'm your head number one, the Internet's Joe Patrick, and if your comic shop feels a little more crowded than usual this week, it's because there are now 8 billion people living on planet Earth. I'm your head number two. My name is Matt Baum, and you know what that means, Joe. It's only a matter of time before we start seeing one in eight billion variant covers on the shelves. Can you imagine what one of those CGC at 4.5 is going to go for? Oh, my God. <laughs> 4.5? That's low grade. You're never going to find them solid. Come on. No way. <laughs> in this episode, we're back to reviewing new comics from this week and last week. And after that, we'll set you up with our must-read picks for next week. Finally. Did you know that there are people out there that actually pay for this podcast? I am crapping you negative. And if you not support a us, billion of them, not a billion, certainly. If eight billion people gave us a penny, we'd have eighty grand, and I would head for Mexico. <laughs> I mean, I'd have to crunch those numbers up. I'm, I'm crapping you negative, and if you support us on Patreon, you will get access to our THN Extra. Today on the show, we're going to give you a preview of our Ask a Nerd segment. It is very JSA-centric, and we got just a guy to answer that question. His name's Joe Patrick. You're going to love it. It's all happening in this pre-Turkey Day extravaganza, and it starts... With review time! In the Wow. Yeah. It's exciting. It was a like... This episode's new comic pile comes from new comic book Wednesdays, November 9th and November 16th. Matt, thank you for putting the full dates in there instead of just writing a string of numbers. And we'll be taking a look at eight comics featuring a bunch of made-up DC Golden Age characters, Stargirl issuing an Amber Alert, Marvel's first family getting a new number one, the Wildcats get a whole new groove, and Mr. Freeze gets his bad day. And it all starts with a quick trip to Mars. That's right. First, we're going to lead off with Traveling to Mars. Number one from A Blaze is $3.99. It's written by Mark Russell with art by Roberto Call Me Dakar Melly. I don't know why. <laughs> Dakar is in quotes on the credits page, so there you go, buddy. From two-time Eisner and Harvey Award nominee Mark Russell and hot new talent Roberto Melly. That's Roberto Dakar Melly to you, sir. Roberto. <laughs> Dracar Noir Melly <laughs> comes a compelling new sci-fi series. Traveling to Mars tells the story of a former pet store manager, Roy Livingston, the first human to ever set foot on Mars. Roy was chosen for this unlikely mission for one simple reason. He's terminally ill and therefore he has no expectation of returning. Roy. Hey, hey. Yeah. Roy is joined on his mission to Mars by Leopold and Albert, two Mars rovers equipped with artificial intelligence, who look upon the dying pet store manager as sort of a god. I would argue we don't really see that here, but I assume it's coming. Against the backdrop of not only his waning days, but those of human civilization as well, Roy has ample time to think about where things went wrong for both them and what it means to be a dying god. A riveting story of planetary, a riveting story of planetary exploration and of finding meaning. In your final days. In the hands of just about any other creator, traveling to Mars is the kind of story that could become an over the top, snarky black comedy about a loser with a filthy mouth. He's probably a sex addict too if Mark Millar is writing. Luckily, we are dealing with Mark Russell, who writes comedy, and this is a black comedy, but he's able to pull it off with real heart. Roy's a simple guy from Alabama, he has cancer. And while he's being painted as an ex-pet store manager turned hero, he's discovering he's being manipulated by a fake meat company to serve as a ceremonial standard in a bid to be the first man to claim Mars's natural resources. Still, being a hero isn't bad, and Russell Paints Roy is a guy willing to go along with the ride because, well, he's dying anyway, so why not? The art by Millie is perfect for this kind of story. He has some panels featuring Roy sketching and writing in his personal journal that also tell and show the reader about his past growing up in a Pentecostal household. It's clever, and he differentiates the art just a bit in the sketches to make them look like Roy is actually drawing this. 
While not laugh out loud funny, Russell and Millie are telling a cynical comedy story that takes a hard look at capitalism, hero worship, and suicide. And I got to say, it really worked for me. It's a personal story about a guy just like most of us who gets sick, gets a chance to die a hero, which should be easy as long as he doesn't think about it too much. I'm giving this a buy it. Yeah. Um. I liked this a lot. Uh, Roy is a, a, a character with his, you know, wide brimmed feathered hat. <laughs> and well, it's uh, Stevie Ray Vaughn's hat. Stevie Ray Vaughn <laughs> yeah, hat. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I thought that this was just a, a really great read. Uh, the art's very good. This is a this is a me thing. It's a minor nitpick, and certainly there are, there are other choices that could have been made. But as far as like the bits about Roy being uh, uh, being the one to draw in the sketchbook. Uh, I did think those were great. Like he's kind of doing a, a visual journal. Yeah. The writing though, that accompanies it is very clearly a computer generated font and not one of the good ones, not one of the good handwriting. Ones. Sure. I, I, it doesn't look like handwriting at all. No, it, it definitely um, looks like something directly out it, of some type it of looks. Uh, I mean, it's like, Photoshop um, it's, or- it, yeah, it's like a slightly less crappy Comic Sans, which is, uh, you know, there are handwriting fonts out there. Like you can get them and, and, and they look like actual handwriting. But other than that, you know, that's a, like I said, a small nitpick. I liked this a lot. It's a buy it for me. The art is great. Wow. You know a group of people who've been to Mars a time or two? The X-Men. The Fantastic Four. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly yeah. right. Them the too. Fantastic yes. Four. You yep. nailed it. Um, we don't call it any of that anymore, Joe. It's a racco now. So appreciate if you give it yeah. the times. Uh, you're right. My bad. Uh, and, but that's okay because nobody leaves planet Earth in Fantastic Four number one. Not a single soul. It's from Marvel Comics. It's written by Ryan North with art by Ivan Coelho. Here's your solicit. Whatever happened to the Fantastic Four? It's the start of a new era for the Fantastic Four, and they're already in a ton of trouble. Something has gone terribly wrong in New York, and The Thing and Alicia are traveling across America to escape it. But when they stop in a small town for the night and wake up the morning before they arrived, they find themselves caught in a time loop that's been going on since before they were born. That's been going on since before they were born. That's been going on. Okay, okay, okay. We get it. (laughs) Hey, it's in there three times. I'm just reading what's written. Taking a page from the recent Amazing Spidey relaunch, the new Fantastic Four title begins a short time after some unspecified disaster caused by Reed Richards. But unlike whatever caused the wreck Peter Parker made of his personal relationships, this incident seems to come with a whole lot more collateral damage. That's a tomorrow problem, though. For now, this issue focuses solely on Ben and Alicia. Right off the bat, it's clear that Ryan North knows these characters inside and out. The Idol of Millions and the brilliant blind sculptress are madly in love and live proudly in the public eye, despite the fact that that may come with a lot of disapproving looks. Uh, pro tip for those of you Googling during work hours. Sculptress will autocorrect to Sculptress with an E, which is a lingerie company. Huh. So, okay. fair warning. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's all very tame. I didn't click on anything, but still. Uh Uh-huh. Ben has made peace with his physical condition, but still feels the sting of the judgment of others. Alicia is there to prop Ben up when he needs it and sees the potential in every situation. North's script is very atypical for him as it lacks the jokes that he usually packs from top to bottom and even in the corners of every page. But it's still full of undeniable charm. It's impossible not to fall in love with these two. And the mystery plaguing the small town is a lot of fun with a nice emotional component. Though I loved the story, there are still a couple of things, though, that I'm not quite sold on yet. First, while I think he's a great up-and-coming artist, I am not really sure Ivan Coelho is a good fit for the Fantastic Four. Mm. His layouts are excellent, and he uses them to illustrate the time loop stuff in really interesting ways. His figures are dynamic and exciting. All of that's good. But I am not sure I love his depiction of Ben Grimm. It just looks weird to me. I am willing to be convinced as we start to see the rest of the family, though. So we'll see what happens. Second, 
This issue doesn't feel at all like a first issue, uh-huh. let alone a high-profile relaunch of a flagship title. But maybe that's a good thing. It defies the usual expectations that we've built up over years of constant endings and restarts. That said, it's hard not to feel like something's missing here. But if anyone at Marvel has earned the benefit of the doubt, it's Ryan North. Fantastic Four number one is an unexpected reintroduction to Marvel's first family that puts an emphasis on personal relationships. While the execution may be a little bit curious, the tone is spot on. I'm giving this a buy it. As it stands alone, the issue is great. Okay, there's nothing wrong specifically with this issue. But I'm going to go with a point that you brought up. This is the first issue of the Fantastic Four. You know who we don't see? Anyone else in the Fantastic Four about the thing? <laughs> All right? Don't get me wrong. I like Alicia Masters. She's great. They're cute together. Sure. This felt to me like a special one-shot kind of Fantastic Four issue or a, maybe a, a, you know, a special story that's in a larger Fantastic Four special or something. It doesn't feel like Fantastic Four number one to me. And I'm not saying that it's bad, but I don't know if this is the best way to start a new Fantastic Four series. And I did not love the art either. I got really excited with the cover. The cover is gorgeous. It's Alex Ross doing his new crazy psychedelic blown out colors type thing. And then the, the opening page where it's like the Fantastic Four and it, and it shows the cast and everything and what they're doing, you know, what, pardon me, the talent on the book and what they do. And you've got this rad layout of the Fantastic Four in different colors. Like, hell yeah, that looks awesome. And then we get kind of a funny, throwaway, cute story that was fine, but I, it was charming at best, I guess. I can only give us a skim it. I like Ryan North. I'm sure Ryan North has bigger plans, but I can only give us a skim it right now. All right. Well, I think that you're being a huge jerk, uh, but what else is new? But as a counterpoint, I will say that like it is, it is the specific mandate of Ryan North and his new direction for the book to tell more self-contained stories and not like the end of the world epics to get back to the family nature. I get it. And if you hate family, then I guess it's not for you. But, hey, I yeah. took your line that this didn't feel like a Fantastic Four number one, and it was kind of strange. It didn't feel like a. <laughs> it didn't feel like a first issue. That doesn't mean it's not a good issue. I thought it was a fine issue. Well, whatever. There I am. I hope you're ready for your biannual Wildcats relaunch because here it is. But don't call them a covert action team. It's Wildcats number one from DC. It's written by Matthew Rosenberg with art by Steven Segovia. Here is your solicit. Spinning from the pages of Batman comes a senses-shattering new series. The Halo Corporation has gathered a motley crew of operatives led by Cole, Grifter, Cash. We're going to make the world a better place no matter who they have to kill. Working in the shadows of the DC Universe, this new covert team has been tasked with gathering an elite group of scientists for the first phase of their plan. But the cat's mysterious leader, Void, might have other plans. DC has been, I was going to say struggling to include elements of the Wildstorm Universe, but that would imply that they tried at all in the past. I would argue they just kind of threw them in there and said, go. <laughs> Let's just say that DC has been less than successful incorporating Wildstorm characters into their universe for quite some time now. To his credit, Matthew Rosenberg has done a really nice job bringing some of the Wildcats into his Batman Urban Legends book, and it's worked really well. Rosenberg, who wrote a couple of Hawkeye titles Joe and I both really liked, understands how to write a talented doofus, and in this case, it's Cole Cash, the grifter. Cole is easily the most relatable in the group of weirdos, and Rosenberg plays that up very well. The DCU is overflowing with superheroes that wish they were Superman, or look up to Superman, or dress like Superman so others will look up to them. The Wildcats are doing something different. They may be super people, but they are not superheroes. They work for their jerk boss, Jacob Marlowe, and they aren't a covert action team anymore, which is good, because what does that even mean? 
Now they work as a crisis aversion team, which no, I, I don't know if that a means crisis, anything. a crisis aversion tactical squad. Oh, crisis aversion tactical so that squad. All yeah. four letters in cats are part of the. Oh, acronym. there we go. Yeah, still fairly meaningless, but it definitely sounds better. Steven Segovia also seems to be having fun here, too, and Rosenberg gives him plenty of action to play with. Segovia is one of those artists whose style changes subtly on every project, and here he's going pure action. Unlike a lot of the previous Wildcats relaunches, this one comes off as just fun, and you can see it in Segovia's art, where unlike a lot of the superhero stuff he draws, here Rosenberg gives him a chance to draw characters both bleeding and blowing people away. Wildcats doesn't need to be another superhero comic, and this creative team understands that. This is a chance to see how people deal with the darker side of the DCU, and it feels a lot like what I loved about Gail Simone's Secret Six. I think we might have finally found a place for these Wildstorm refugees, and I kind of loved it. I think the secret is, just do it. Don't try as hard as you were. And don't try and tell me that some of them are in Stormwatch and members of the Justice League and shit. Just do it and do it this way. I'm giving this a buy it. I like Rosenberg. This is a nice relaunch. Is it the best thing ever? No, it's the best thing they've done with the Wildcats in a long time. Okay, so um, I read this twice because admittedly the first time I read it, I was um, on the toilet. I was mad because of the the device I had to read it on was giving me all kinds of problems. And so reading it was a chore, um, which is not the comic's fault. Um, so I read it a second time and I, I thought it was fine. I, I don't know. I mean, again, I, I, your mileage may vary. If you are a big time Wildcats fan, you might read this and be like, like, finally, it's our, the Renaissance is here. I read this and was like, okay, here's another group of random people, half of which do not appear in the comic. Uh, or only appear briefly, uh, you know, off to the side. Like Voodoo is uh, ostensibly in the comic; she does not appear. Spartan uh, is supposed to be in here. I assume Spartan is Marlo's bodyguard. Yes, in disguise. Yeah. Um, no Maul. That's some bullshit. Uh, no Warblade. Whatever. <laughs> oh please. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kidding at this point. Um, I, I love the redesign of Void as like yeah. w- like. Void does not need to be a sexy lady in skin tight silver. Put her, make her a skeleton in an astronaut suit. I think that's awesome. Um, I don't know. I, I thought that the story was trying very hard to be cute. And I thought uh, that maybe it could have used a little bit more time establishing the premise instead of just like jumping around from like, and now we're at hive. Right. And now we're doing this. It's like, okay. Oh, I also like, I also really like the new status quo for Deathblow, which you wouldn't know unless you read the interviews that I read leading up to this comic. Yeah, they're gonna uh, they're gonna lay it out because they drop some hints as to what's going on in here. But I but think, right now it's just like the, yeah, right now you it, don't it, like as it stands in this comic book. It's in this comic. It's just like, wait, what are they saying about Deathblow? Is he dead? Spoilers: No, he's not dead. Uh. Is just his body's dead. Yeah, <laughs> his body and, is dead. <laughs> um, you know, and so I thought that this. I don't think I don't think Rosenberg did enough to set up the actual premise: who the Wildcats are, what they do, who all of the characters are. I mean, but There's, Grifter kind of like spells out the entire story to the guy no, that he's talking to in the very no, beginning. <laughs> Grifter tells a series of stories that people think are lies. Like nobody believes yeah. Grifter when he says this stuff, but all that stuff about the Carob and the and the Demonites is probably true. Yeah, then he said we hop through a multiverse and here we are. <laughs> yeah, and it's like I don't know. I I'm giving this a skim it, and uh, it's not because I'm mad about your Fantastic Four review. No, you just it is you funny. wish it, this would have been a story where Grifter and maybe I don't know his girlfriend go on a date and like I don't know go to a town <laughs> where it has nothing to do with the team, you um, know, and no, it's just cute. I'm say, look, I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying that when I when I know what the premise of a title is, I'm okay with a different sort of story within that title, even though it doesn't feel even though Fantastic Four did not feel like a first issue. But we already did that. Yeah, we already had that conversation. We already did that. Um, No, I think I thought that this uh, was okay, and I'll read more of it. 
I just needed more. I needed I needed more about what the Wildcats are, who they are and what they do and less of Grifter being cute. That's all. Okay. The art is great. Steven Segovia, outstanding. Oh, and I did I did love this is a slight spoiler. I did love the Wildcats teleporting out of the hive base uh just in time for Nightwing and Yeah, uh, that's great. Nightwing and uh who was who was, it was Nightwing and Orphan or whatever her name is or is if, Oh yeah, it was Cassandra. Yeah, it yeah. was Cassandra. Yeah, the yeah, Batgirl. Like see and, um, and I kind of like the tongue in cheek thing because every other time we've done this Wildcats has been so soul Oh no no, don't get me wrong. Serious, you know. Don't it's get just, me wrong. It's ugh. not that it's not that I don't like it to be tongue in cheek. I thought that it was too much of Grifter being funny and not enough setting up of the premise i want grifter to be funny i'm okay with it being tongue-in-cheek i just needed it a little bit i needed the balance to be a little bit different but uh yeah it's a skim it great art i'll definitely read more on the subject of books that are tongue-in-cheek and uh, totally funny I bring you the new Golden Age one-shot from DC Comics. Uh, Hilarious. It's the first thing that comes to just, mind. <laughs> it's like a laugh riot. Uh, put that on your pull quote. Uh, a laugh riot, says Joe Patrick of the Two-Headed Nerd. Uh, it's written by Jeff Johns with art by the following luminaries, artistic luminaries. Diego Olortegui. Jerry Ordway, Steve Lieber, Todd Knock, Scott Collins, Victor Bogdanovich, Brandon Peterson, and Gary Frank. Here's your solicit. From the Justice Society of America to the Legion of Superheroes, the new Golden Age will unlock DC's epic and secret-ridden history of heroism, launching a new group of titles set firmly in the DC universe. From the 1940s to the 3040s, heroes take on the great evils of their time, but in the aftermath of Flashpoint Beyond, those heroes and villains will have their lives turned upside down. DC's future and its past will never be the same again. But how are Mime and Marionette connected to this? They're not. Why? We just put them they're, in there. <laughs> I mean, they're there. Why are Rip Hunter and the Time Masters the most unlikable heroes in the DC universe? And who or what is nostalgia? Don't miss the start of the strangest mystery to have ever plagued the DC universe. The new Golden Age is a twisted labyrinth of continuity, both old and new. Through a series of abrupt time jumps, and I do mean abrupt, <laughs> we learn of a villain traveling through time with a singular goal. Kill every incarnation of Dr. Fate he can find. And when fate dies, the JSA can't be far behind. Meanwhile, we're introduced to a young girl several years in the future whose identity will be immediately obvious to old school JSA fans. As Johns takes us around the timeline, even introducing us to the Justice Society of the Legion of Superheroes era, he invokes the tone of eras like uh, the old Golden Age <laughs> and the 1970s All-Star Comics years. Without the dedicated timeline Dan DiDio promised us before he got canned, I have no idea how these incorporate into current DC continuity. Like, I know where they fall chronologically, but I'm not 100% sure we're even on the same earth from scene to scene. My guess, and this is a guess, is that the history of the JSA has been put back on earth, too. That's what it seems okay. like, right? And this is, con this is considering the events of the final page and the characters involved. No spoilers. If you know, you know, and I'm not going to spell it out for you. I'm also pretty certain about the identity of the villain as the JSA only has one ginger time-traveling leather-clad nemesis. Who is it? His name is Perdegaton, and normally he wears a leather military suit with a giant red D on the front of it. Perdegaton? Perdegaton. Two okay. words. P-E-R-D-E-G-A-T-O-N. Perdegaton. Oh, okay. All of this is to say that I, a self-proclaimed DC continuity expert, I'm unsure about a whole lot of the things happening in this issue, and I can't imagine how it reads to someone with little to no experience with the subject matter or who hasn't read everything that Johns has done leading up to this going all the way back to Doomsday Clock. That's right. There's more Watchmen shit in here, too, and it's just shoved right in. But the lifelong DC fan in me did love the mystery, and I'm eager to see where we go from here once we get into the more focused titles. More on that later.
the art is all over the place, but it ranges from decent to great. I didn't have any huge problems with any of the work, and the artists are clearly working on dedicated eras within the story. They're not coming in and out at random, so the artistic changes make sense. I especially liked um, Jerry Ordway's contributions because not only does the art look vintage, but the word balloons look vintage. Yeah. The word balloons look golden age. That the was coloring cool. is different. The new golden age one shot wasn't quite the magic cure all for all of DC's missing legacy woes that I was hoping for, but there's a lot of meat on these bones for longtime fans. And I am excited to see where Johns takes the various stories from here. I'm giving this a skim. It. It's not terrible. It's just I, like, it's very, it's a lot. It's impenetrable. It's impenetrable. And, and, if so, you are not a, if you are not a seasoned JSA vet, and I mean like Earth Two JSA. Oh yeah. Then you might like you might read this and go, I don't know what's going on. Okay, so I know just a little less than you. Been hosting a comic book podcast for more than ten years, reading DC comics for a long time. Well, yeah, but how much do you know about Earth Two? Very little. So when See? I read this, I just it, Joe, I could barely keep track of what was happening. And this is how I felt with this whole like mini series. We just got out of with the flashpoint thing that he did as well, that jumped all over and dealt with multiple earths and multiple timelines and different and trying to connect Watchmen into this stuff. And like, it's too much. It's just too much. It, this feels to me like a very talented guitar player in a band that gets sick of the lead singer and goes, you know what? I'm starting my own band. There's not going to be a singer. And I'm just going to get up stage and, and just will, 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 will the entire time. And like, no, it's not a song. It's just me freaking out. Check it out, everybody. Like settle down, Jeff Johns. Okay. <laughs> settle down. You don't have to do this to fix the JSA. There's nothing inherently wrong with the JSA. And I would take it even further. Like, you fixed all those problems the last time you wrote the JSA, okay? Just gently introduce them. It, it, it cheapens things for me when you tell me, okay, these characters are back. Great. Tell me about the characters. Oh, but wait, Matt, there's more. There's 17 different versions of these characters. I'm like, oh, oh, Matt, I just killed one of them. I'm like, oh, well, I mean, there's 16 more, so big deal. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I just found it really hard to care about these characters that I genuinely love, you know, and like, and I know I can see him working, I guess. And he's putting a thing together, but there were so many artists and so many time jumps and just so much going on. This is absolutely impenetrable. I, I'm giving it a skim it as well, because there's a lot of good art. I like these characters. I just wish he would stop trying to be Alan Moore and just be Jeff Johns. I feel like this is Jeff. Yeah, Johns. You know what? Yes, that is a great, analysis he's trying yes. to be it's like he he's like i'm gonna put on my you know what he's doing he's going i'm gonna put on my grant morrison hat like you know what that's not enough no it's a be it's a beard i'm it's gonna a, put my alan moore hat to on. on top of my grant morrison hat there we go now i'm <laughs> the alan morrison Moore. you know like whoa <laughs> like there's no reason to do it it's too complex dial it back man Dial it back and just tell me a good I mean, GSA story. I, I, I have a feeling that if you looked at these events chronologically and you can go to Newsarama, they, they actually posted an article. I'm not saying they don't make sense. No, no, no. Like, they, like Newsarama posted an article that said, hey, here's a list of the events of the new Golden Age in chronological order. <laughs> and I think if you looked at it that way, you would be like, okay, I get it. Sure. Um, but you don't need to tell me that in one issue. Bang! There right. it all is. You know? It's not that it's impossible to follow the time jumps it's that there are details like the little girl yeah okay well if the little girl is who the story says she is and we have no reason to think otherwise then this is either a, a, a potential future hyper time thing or they are on an alternate universe earth especially given the final page um but they also make it feel like they're bringing that to the DC earth as we know it. And the solicit says this happens firmly in DC continuity. Well, so, but just cause it's on earth too, doesn't yeah, necessarily mean I, it's not in the DC universe. Joe, I hate you know this what I'm earth saying? Too shit. I hate it. And, I hate it. And that's what, and that's, <laughs> and we've, we've lived, we've lived so long without having multiple earths. Yes. Easily traversable multiple earths. Right, right. Say. Where people just keep accident. I'm, I was jogging and I fell off the curb and landed on Earth 94. Like <laughs> we've, had, we've had multiple earths. We've had multiple earths since the end of 
Infinite Crisis or 52, right? I guess. And, yeah. uh, or whenever it happened, uh, Infinite Crisis for 52. I don't know. One of those. But they were all very distinct, right? Right. Like this Earth is this Elseworlds. This Earth is this. Right. There was a dinosaur one. There's an old West one. There's yeah. like, like this is the world that the Jurassic one, League. The lives one where on. Superman's a vampire. Like instantly, this is just like in this world, there are two things that are very slightly different. And when those two things are changed, this world is born. <laughs> I, I almost it. want to get into, I almost want to spoil it because it was from Don't last spoil week. It. Don't spoil it. We can talk right. about it. If somebody it's wants fine. to talk about it, that's what cover to cover, cover is to for. cover. Yes. Come on. Oh, cover to cover. Brian, Let's talk about this. Brian Domingos will definitely want to talk about it. Yeah. Cause so, um, wow. <laughs> it's just, but, uh, yeah. So there's a lot going on here. There are a lot of moving parts. The Watchmen stuff feels so completely out of place yes. that I just don't understand why they're doing it. Right. There's just no reason um, to. You don't need. And if you want to do that. And I can't imagine that, they're making, like, what, is there money to be made from the mime and the marionette? I doubt it. Maybe there is. And if you want to do that, just do it. You don't need to do it here. There's nothing about the JSA that goes, oh, you know, it would lend itself really well to the JSA. Characters from Watchmen that I invented that weren't even in the original Watchmen. You know, like right, yeah. What? <laughs> yes, <laughs> Why? right. Like and like that goes beyond mime and marionette to like yeah to to extremes that made my eyes roll out of my head. I was like, not him, not him, yeah, not him, and not that other him. We'll see what happens. Uh, but right now, it's a skim it. Uh, for every for every fun idea that I was like, ooh, can't wait to see where that goes. There was something that made me go, ugh. Yeah. I think Jeff Johns either needs to change his medication or get off his medication. One of the or get back on. Or get on some medication. <laughs> yeah. One of the change, get off, or get back on. One of the three. I don't know. Jumping to this week, 1116. That's November, Joe. Just so you can keep up. Thank you. I want to talk about Chroma, number one from Image slash Skybound. It is $7.99, but it's a big boy. It's like 60 pages, so it's worth it. It's a beefy boy, yeah. It is written and drawn by Lorenzo De Felice. Here's your solicit. Miniseries premiere for fans of Little Monsters and Ultra Mega. I'm not exactly sure. Like, I didn't get the Ultra Mega part, but okay. Or the Little Monsters, for that matter. I don't know. Imprisoned in a tower within the walls of the Pale City, Chroma is believed to be the most evil creature alive. But a chance meeting with the mysterious orphan Zet creates an opportunity for Chroma to escape her cruel fate. That is, if they can survive the strange dangers within the city walls and the monstrous threats that lie beyond. Writer-artist Lorenzo De Felice of Oblivion Song creates a breathtaking adventure like none other, filled with strange creatures and unparalleled beauty in a colorful world unlike anything ever seen in comics. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Ever? I mean, like, look, it's good. It's very good. The art's great. I don't know if I would say like I've ever seen in comics, but, you know. <laughs> I've read some pretty beautiful Not comics. their fault. From the first few panels on page one, it becomes instantly obvious that Felici is an amazing artist with an instantly recognizable style. His work moves from highly detailed with just stunning color to a more cartoonish black and white that almost makes it look like two different artists are working on the book at times. The story sets up a city inhabited by men who survived some type of Lizard attack apocalypse they blame on an angry godlike creature, the King of Colors. Since then, the inhabitants of the Pale City have removed all color from their existence with the belief that not only is color evil, it also attracts giant killer lizards. So, Chroma. It, ha it happens. <laughs> Chroma is believed to be a being sent by the King of Colors. The colorless men has have captured and they ritualistically chase and torture the creature every 10 moons well, a few months right to show their dominance over the king of colors but when zet a young boy raised in the cult as a soldier in training catches a glimpse of the young girl's eye inside the ridiculous chroma costume she's wearing his whole worldview begins to crumble felice tells an amazing story about the dangers of absolute faith using a fantasy setting where some of the monsters are very real. The first issue of Chroma is a sweeping and beautiful introduction to this world with just absolutely incredible art and a very poignant look at fascism and the safety that it can appear to provide. I'm giving this a buy it. This is one of those books where I wasn't ready for it 
when I went into it and coming out of it leveled, just leveled by what they set up here. And amazing. Yeah. Just amazing. Um, I really loved this and it's got a last page that like literally made me like I, I, I made an audible I made an audible sound. Yeah. Like I looked at it and went, um, oh, and then I went, no. And I looked at it again and went, oh yeah. So yeah, kinda of like basically, yeah. Um I, I, I thought it was uh just really, really beautifully done. Uh not just artistically, but like the world building yeah. that uh De Felici does in just you know the six like 60 pages sounds like a lot, but I got it. He right. He set out to establish his premise and he did it. It's like reading bone. Yeah. Like when you pick up like that giant volume of bone and like the next thing you know, you're three quarters of the way through it. And you're just like, oh, my God. Kind of. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but it didn't take three quarters of the way for me to understand what's going on. No, you know? not at like all. It, and like while there are certainly still mysteries about this world and, and, and what's going to happen to Chroma and, and Zet. I was blown away by by this. And I am very interested to see what happens next. Again, the art is gorgeous and the the use of color just as as sporadically as they do is just really well done. Yeah. Huge bite. I really like it. And, this and a lot. making that like part of the story as well is just brilliant. Where it, it's not just a color trick they're doing to show you something, like it is directly part of this story is why they do it. It's very clever. My magical mystery tour of DC's Golden Age continues with Stargirl, The Lost Children, number one. It's like, uh, like I said, from DC Comics. It's written by Jeff Johns with art by Todd Nock. Here is your solicit. An epic teenage DC hero event brought to you by Teen Titans writer Jeff Johns and iconic Young Justice illustrator Todd Nock. When Stargirl of the Justice Society and Green Arrow's ally Red Arrow discover a tragic teenage hero from the past has gone missing. They set out to find him only to discover he's not the first teenage hero of the golden age to have vanished without a trace. But where have they gone? Who are they? And what does the child minder want with them? Gross. The child minder just makes you think it's some sort of really creepy thing. Yeah. The child minder. Don't say it like that. <laughs> yeah. As promised, the first threads from the new Golden Age one-shot manifest here as Courtney Whitmore is dragged into the mystery of the Golden Age's missing sidekicks by her friend, Red Arrow, uh, who is, hey, apparently, Green Arrow's sister. I didn't, I don't know anything about her. There you go. Okay. Yeah, it was news to me, too. All right, they're friends? Wait a minute. She's what? <laughs> okay. Um, I think Red Arrow was introduced during the um, New 52 era. And what would that explains why I don't know anything about her. Unlike the last book I reviewed, it seems pretty clear to me that this takes place on the main DC Earth, which is baffling because I thought they were connected. But this comic directly references current characters like Red Arrow yeah. and events from titles past like Stars and Stripe and Young Justice Volume 1. John's script is a nostalgic deep dive into DC's weird history, especially where its sidekicks are concerned. As it turns out, there are a bunch of those little rugrats that you haven't even heard of, and they all disappeared under mysterious circumstances decades ago. Red Arrow wants Stargirl to help her solve the mystery, but Courtney's been letting her hero life get in the way of her real life, causing conflict at home. Without the need to set up a dozen different things, John's story is a lot more focused here which makes this a much easier read even for me. And being that Stargirl is a very personal creation for him, Johns falls right back into writing her and her family without missing a beat. Todd Nock is on our duties here, and his work looks better than it has in years. Some of that credit does go to the excellent color art by Matt Herms, who switches from a vibrant, youthful palette for the modern scenes to a muted kind of grainy, like almost like newsreel grain for the flashbacks. I thought it was very effective. Stargirl, the lost children. Number one picks up just one of the threads from the new golden age and runs with it, making a much stronger read in the process. I'm giving this a buy it. I really liked it. So I'm not a Todd knock fan. I haven't been. And it's not because he's a bad artist. Not at all. It's just one of those personal things. I don't care for his style. He it, does a certain kind of thing. He does a certain kind of thing, and it makes everybody look, in my opinion, very childlike and young. And it can give books kind of a kiddie feeling. And 
when we're trying to do a story like this, which is interesting, I will give you that. Like, I think this is the most interesting part of what came out of that new golden age, right? Because they sort of invented these kids sidekicks that disappeared and they had a really fun, like who's who pages for some of them in the back of the new golden age where they were like inserted into actual DC comic books that they were not in, which is fun. That's- no, they were, they were, they were inserted into titles, uh, into issues of real titles right. that did not exist. Oh, I know, but title, some of the them title, did exist. The titles are real. The issue numbers are not. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I thought some of them were real issues, <laughs> but that's fun. No, all, most of these characters, all, all of these characters are fake. They're made up. That's fun. And I find that interesting. At the same time, we have a lot of kids running around the DCU right now. And if the goal of this is to introduce a junior JSA like he did on the Stargirl TV show. I don't know if I care. <laughs> okay, but you don't know if that's his goal. I don't know if that's a goal or not. I don't know. These characters were kids in the 40s. Right. I don't know, but they're not going to be when she finds them. They're still going to be kids that have vanished or something. You, you, they're not going to be all grown well, up. I mean, it's something to that effect. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. And, and I, we'll see where it goes from here. I definitely thought this was better than the new golden age because it is a little more focused. I'm not a big Red Arrow fan. She seems a little young to be Ollie's half sister, but hey, families are families. Who am I to <laughs> call it or whatever? Is she Ollie's half sister or is she? She's Ollie's half, yeah, half sister. Amiko was born to Robert Queen and Shadow on Starfish Island. That would make her the new 52's younger Green Arrow's half sister. Not. Well, I don't know that they necessarily aged up Ollie. They just made him act like old Ollie. <sighs> see okay this is another problem but anyway it's not this book's fault it has nothing to do with this comment it has nothing to do with this comment that's that's just confusing as it is no this is definitely better i'm gonna give it a skim it not because it's bad but because i want to see how much i care as it goes on and i don't this artist just isn't for me it's hard for me to to stay invested in a todd knock book quite honestly we'll see where it goes from here but i'll give it i'll give it a strong skim for now I'm just tired of you kicking me around. Charles. I'm sick of all these kitty comics. I want to talk about what happens when Mr. Freeze has one bad day. It's the Batman one bad day. Mr. Freeze one shot is from DC is $7.99. Again, beefy boy, 48 pages. Good chunk. It's written by Jerry Duggan. With art by Matteo Scalera, here is your solicit. Going back to the Dark Knight's early days in Gotham City, Batman and Robin, Dick Grayson. You don't have to do that. Just say Batman and a young Dick Grayson, Robin. Something like that, right? Face down the coldest winter Gotham City has ever seen. A winter so cold that Mr. Freeze, Victor Freeze, no longer needs his containment suit to survive. He's in an element where he can thrive. Robin empathizes with Mr. Freeze. All Freeze wants to do is save his wife, Nora, but Batman warns Robin not to give his empathy to Victor Freeze. He's a man who decided his own fate a long time ago, and he deserves none of our warmth. And this winter, he will show his true wickedness and power. The powerhouse creative team of best-selling writer Jerry Duggan, who works on X-Men, Deadpool, and Arkham Manor, and Matteo Scalera, who worked on White Knight Presents, Harley Quinn, which sounds racist when they say it like that without the Batman part, but whatever. And he also worked on Black Science, an excellent book you should all read. Brings you Mr. Freeze's most frigid story yet. Mr. Freeze gets his one bad day, one shot, and following the premise of the others before, Duggan and Scalera put a twist on the character that not only changes his motives, but also sheds some doubt on the sympathetic villain Paul Dini recreated in Batman the Animated Series. Duggan isn't taking the Snyder and Tinny in the four New 52 freeze route, where they revealed Victor Freeze wasn't in a relationship with his frozen love Nora at all, but just a stalker that keeps his obsession trapped in ice. Here, Duggan reveals Dr. Freeze wasn't in the happiest marriage before Nora got sick. We see him questioning her after she comes home from time with her friends. He refuses to talk to, using his work as an excuse. Scalera is teamed up with the amazing Dave Stewart on colors, and the results are tremendous. 
the nighttime winter setting gives Stuart's colors the chance to just really pop. And we even get to see Batman in a glowing orange experimental bat suit yeah, at the one sun point. Suit. <laughs> Sclera had a blast here and even got to design a new bat snowmobile as well. It's Duggan's script that brings it all together, though. The holiday setting is really nice. It makes for some sweet bat family moments between Bruce, Alfred, and a young dick. I'd really like to see what he could do with a monthly bat title. And please, feel free to bring this art team along. Mr. Freeze's one bad day, one shot, was as good as I expected with a creative team this talented. But I didn't see the new take on the character coming. Which I gotta say, at first, I was a little... Uh, I don't know if I like it. By the end, they sold me. They pulled this off nicely without creating another murderous Joker character in Gotham. Given this, a buy it. I loved this. Uh, you know what? I actually, I gave my uh, review to our Discord audience already, and uh, it's a Discord exclusive. So if you want my review, go to the Discord. <laughs> there you go. Just kidding. I'll say here what I said there. Um, not only is this the best one bad day one shot by a wide margin, it is also probably one of the best comics I've read this year. I not only liked this, I loved this. And it's a combination of the character work by Duggan yeah. and the art by Scalera. Mateo Scalera's Batman is terrifyingly large yeah there are like, times where it got a little ridiculous but i didn't mind it where he's just like but, barrel chested <laughs> but like not but like king kong bundy is large like right not like look how jacked that guy is it's like no he's all like the he's all just like he's a mountain of a man he's all just like round lines like there's no <laughs> chiseling about it he's just like he's a beefy dude like an old timey strongman, kind of like how Superman used to be when he was first created. Yeah. And I just, I loved that take. He was like larger than life almost. I loved this take on Dick Grayson. Took me a second because I didn't read the solicit in advance. Took me a second to realize who we were talking about. But the moment Robin was nice to somebody, I was like, oh, it's Dick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Because he's kind of dressed like Damien. But it's just it's more so that he's just he's wearing like long underwear. Sure. Because it's cold outside. Right. I thought this was outstanding. Outstanding. Huge by it. It's it's one of the best comics I read all year. I truly did love it. OK, real quick. And this is not a nitpick, but I don't know who this character is. Frostbite. Mr. I don't Freezes. know. I don't know. And I don't really care. Brand new. Cause I even looked and I couldn't find it. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't like, detract from anything. No, I was just curious. Like, is this a new character that they injected, you know, or I, has this been around? Cause the only other frostbite I can think of was like a wild storm frostbite character. I so. honestly do not know. is of Voyages number one. It's a weird title. From Image Comics, it's written and drawn and I'm just apologizing right now and there's a reason why I only refer to this person by their last name for the remainder of the review. Sumei Kezgin. I feel like you're close. I feel like that's good. Here's your solicit. What if one of the Voyager probes was found by aliens on an uninhabitable planet laid to waste by a wandering black hole? Their resources dwindling, and under the thumb of a relentless tyrant, alien hero sends discovery of the probe leads to adventure and possible salvation for her and her people. Voyages is a five-issue miniseries and star artist Kesgin's writing debut. You may know Kesgin's work from books like Elsewhere and Rise of the Magi, both of which are image books. Voyages is capital S sci-fi. Dropping you into a crazy alien world full of unknown dangers, complete with weird slang and curse words. And yet, the story Kesgen is telling about a group of scavengers desperately seeking for resources and the authoritarian force that strives to keep the oppressed under their thumb is all too familiar. Sen and Zack are our heroes here, and Kesgen throws them into the deep end, fighting for their lives against an overwhelming force. Our heroes are plucky, and our villains are dark and unknowable. Truly alien in a way that the heroes aren't. 
The story draws you in immediately, keeping you on the edge of your seat for the entire issue. And that's when you're suddenly faced with a curveball thrown all the way from the planet Earth. I read the solicit in advance. I knew about the Voyager thing. And by the time I got to the end of the issue, I had forgotten. Yeah. I missed it totally because we ju- you just read the solicit. I didn't read the solicit before I read it. And I was like, Voyager, what? What's that about? Yeah. And I went back and looked. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's it right there. <laughs> like, OK. Right. And then but so and then it happens. And anyway, you got to you got to read it. Keskin's art is absolutely incredible. I wasn't at all familiar with their work prior to this, but I was blown away by the designs of the characters, the creatures and the alien landscapes. I was so drawn in to the odd looking nature of everything involved that the revelation of the earthbound connection made for a much more effective surprise. Voyages number one is a bold new sci-fi adventure by an incredible talent that definitely should be on your radar. I'm giving this a buy it. It's great. You know what this reminded me of? This very much hit me like Carlos Esguera 2000 AD sort of British sci-fi where it's just like, no rules, man. Off the, we're just off the rails, crazy sci-fi with like wise talking aliens and they got nicknames for stuff. And like, there's some bad guys here. Like, just hold on. All right, here we go. And I loved it. Loved it. This was just, it was, I want to say simple. It's not simple in that sense, but it like, it's just doing a very simple job. It's something you can relate to two scavengers trying to make their way in the universe, pissed off about like, ah, these damn bad guys that obviously rule over everything and have all the money and power. And we're just trying to do our thing. You know, it's all here. There was like a firefly aspect to it as well, where like they both have their slang. They know each other very well. You can tell they're comfortable together. And like, these people are more, than just like scumbags working to get like, no, they seem like they're legit buddies. There's a, there's a scene where a big probe thing shows up and they're like, release the dude or whatever. And this like furry thing that messes with electronics comes out and it's like part jellyfish and part dog. And it's just great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is just really fun, really bright, great sci-fi. I I thought this was a blast and it's going to be really hard to pick which was our favorite book this week, which we're about to do in a second here, but I'm giving this not a for me. huge buy it. If you want to know more about these comics we just discussed, check out our show notes where you can find links with more info and a police sketch of Jeff Johns with an Alan Moore beard. And hit us up on our Discord to give us your thoughts. Joe Patrick, before we move on, we've got to pick one of these comics to enter the THN permanent collection. What was your favorite book that you read out of this pile? It was One Bad Day, Mr. Freeze, for sure. I like, I, it was... I, I, I finished that book and I was just like, man, w- that's great comics. It was very that's, good. It, it was so well done. It yeah, was very I good. Give it to, I have to give it to Mr. Freeze. I'm going to give mine to Chroma just because I wasn't ready for it. Didn't know what to expect and came out the other end like, I'm reading all of this. This is going to be amazing. <laughs> totally sold on it. It was a good, it's a, it's a good couple weeks for comics. Yeah, really was. Packed full of good stuff. Okay, Matt, review time is over, and you promised we'd do our competitive eating exercises in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum afterwards. Thanksgiving is only a week away, and you need to hit the gym, my friend. What if we just had a nice, sensible dinner with the moment this year, you know? That is not what Thanksgiving is about. It's about excess, gluttony, and being a damn patriot. Now get your skinny ass to the training table, and let's expand that belly. I'm going to get your first bucket of filler food ready. So why don't you tell the nerds about your must-read pick for next Wednesday, November 23rd, in the meantime. It's just like a time when the pilgrims ate all the Indians, right? That's that's what the real story was. That's what Thanksgiving is all about. (laughs) My pick for next week is Doctor Strange, Fall Sunrise, number one of four. It's from Marvel Comics. It's $3.99. It is written and drawn by Trad Moore. Here is your solicit. From the mind of Trad Moore. Doctor Strange awakens alone in a distant world not his own. 
Lost of purpose and surrounded by danger, the wandering sorcerer must explore this land of blades and mystery to unravel arcane secrets and escape the deadly horrors that lie in wait. From the fantastical mind of creator Trad Moore, who brought you Silver Server Black, comes a strange story like you have never seen. I don't think this is happening in continuity. It's Doctor Strange. I don't want to spoil anything that's going on the pages of Strange. You should be reading that, though. It's fantastic. Zebwell's Strange book. Let's just say Doctor Strange is going through a thing. This is Tradmore off the rails, as psychedelic and lunatic as you can possibly get. If you saw Silver Surfer Black, and I say saw because it was a visual feast, you would understand what I'm talking about. This guy is crazy. And his art style was nuts beforehand. Now he has fallen into a black hole and stretched out into a like crazy thin lunatic idea of what his art was i can't wait for this it looks awesome my pick of the week goes to once upon a time at the end of the world number one it's from boom studios it's written by jason aaron oh pardon me cover price is 4.99 i forgot that we do that with new comics it's written by jason aaron with art by alexander tefengi and that's a familiar name that I don't think I've ever said out loud, so I apologize. Here's your solicit. In this epic post-apocalyptic tale, Maceo and Mezzi have never met anyone like each other, and they'll need all the help they can get to survive a planet ravaged by environmental catastrophe. This epic trilogy, each issue overflowing with 30 story pages, spans a lifetime as philosophical differences tear at the threads holding Maceo and Mezzi together. Will they and the earth beneath their feet ultimately be torn apart? New York Times bestselling Eisner and Harvey Award winning and Marvel flagship writer Jason Aaron, you know him from such works as Thor, The Avengers, and Southern Bastards, as well as many other things, launches his most ambitious creator-owned series to date with the first of three unique artistic partners. This just keeps on going. Eisner winning artist Alexandra Tefengi, uh, who you may know from The Good Asian, and I do, and he's great. To take on a vision of the end of the world that's brutal and nostalgic, whimsical and grounded, and ultimately timeless. Now, we've been kind of critical of Jason Aaron in recent years. Like, his Avengers stuff's not really setting the world on fire. But I do think that he thrives when he is at home in his creator-owned sandbox, especially if it's like a long-form thing that he's setting up to do. And that's what this sounds like. I think it's a trilogy of three issues, not three series. Yeah, three issues. So I think it's going to be three oversized issues, which is still fun. I am excited at the potential of Jason Aaron getting to create a new world like he did for books like Scalped and, and uh, you know, so many other things that he's done at Image. And Alexandra, Alexandra Tefengi, if you haven't read The Good Asian, get on it. That book is great. He's exceptional. Yeah. It's, and he's a wonderful artist. So yeah, I think this sounds pretty outstanding. The THN trade of the week for 1123 goes to Copra, the master collection, the hardcover 01. It's from Image. It's $39.99. It's written and drawn by Michelle Fifa. Here is your solicit. Copra's 10th anniversary kicks off with an oversized hardcover compendium collecting its seminal first 12 issues. From writer-artist Michelle Fifa comes the opening salvo of the world's greatest superhero revenge series. Dive into a formalist battle royale of mercenary misfits and celebrate a decade of Copra with style. This collects Copra 1 through 12. It's only 40 bucks. It's a hardcover. It's big. It's sexy. If you don't know Copra. Michelle FIFA is kind of an outsider comic art guy that had an amazing idea based on the Suicide Squad and sort of put together an homage of several characters into this work. And it is wonderful. It's like the, at times it's like peering into the mind of a madman. But once you get into it, you start to realize this guy is a friggin' genius and an excellent storyteller. And also probably a madman. And also yes. probably a madman, but I highly recommend you check this out. 100% agreed. Let us know if our picks of the week filled your bellies with nerdy goodness or left you stranded on the toilet with comic food poisoning over at our Discord in the new comics channel. And don't forget to tell us what you're reading while you're there. 
Before we get out of here, it's time for a sneak peek of our THN Extra when you support THN on Patreon. I'm talking to you. For as little as $1 a month, you, yeah, you, get access to all kinds of extra content just like this. You. We are back with another edition of Axe Nerd, where uh, basically you guys have questions for the nerds to answer them, right? I mean, now comic-related questions. We're not here to help you with your finances or your relationships. We're terrible at that shit. But we're pretty good at comics. Today, one of our youngest listeners, the reason I started bleeping F-bombs, as a matter of fact, has a very JSA-inspired question just for you, Joe Patrick. Let's hear what they've got. Hi, my name's Hugo, and I have a question. I watched Black Adam last night, and I thought it was amazing. So I just want to know, what's the difference between the Justice Society and the Justice League and Mission? Okay. He wants to know the difference between the Justice League and the Justice Society's mission specifically i think yeah i heard him buddy i think what he's saying is more just like like why do we need both what's the difference why why do they do what they do spell well, it out for i us, mean Joe every Patrick. every team every good team has a mission statement sure and you know it's sometimes it's to explore the universe like the fantastic four sometimes it's to protect and fear a world that hates us like the x-men and then sometimes like in the case of the justice league They are basically just a group of heroes banded together to tackle problems larger than the average superhero can handle on their own. Right. A world sort of protection force, if you will, non-governmentally affiliated, just here to help. The Justice Justice League operate on like a galactic scale. Like they're... They fight, they fight interdimensional threats. They fight universal threats. Like they're all over the place. They're not only earthbound, though they are primarily uh they do primarily operate on earth the short answer about the justice league heroes got together so that they could fight things that needed fighting that couldn't be done by like just the atom sure or aquaman and or even just superman or even just batman or just wonder woman yeah yeah i mean i'm not just singling out the 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 jokier ones i mean they're all valued members of the league and they bring their own expertise sure to the team and so that's the Justice League, basically. It's like fighting threats that are too big for anybody else. Yeah, as a team. And they know that. Like, we need each other. Right. We're more than the sum of their parts. So The Justice Society, on the other hand, they actually do have, or they did have, a very specific mission. Originally, the Justice Society was a loose group of heroes recruited by the president. Franklin Delano Roosevelt during World War II. And they weren't a team at the time. They were basically just assembled for a specific mission. Go get Hitler. Hitler has the spear of destiny. It's bad news. We can't have him having an artifact of mystical power. Yeah. And so Green Lantern, the Flash... Well, Alan Scott Green Lantern, not that, not Hal Jordan Green. Yes, this, well, I mean, yeah, this is the J. You know, yeah. All right, Hugo knows that who the JSA is. Well, sure, but, but we got to spell it out for, for everybody. Are, for the benefit, you know? of, for the benefit of people that don't, the Justice Society is the world's first superhero team, right? And so, when we say Green Lantern, Flash, Hawkman, the Atom, we're talking about the first original versions, right? These are different characters than the ones that would later be in the Justice are, League. They are. Golden Age characters, but not actual like DC Golden Age, right? More like Silver Age with a no, fake Golden Age. In the pass. case of the JSA, no. They first appeared as a team in the pages of All Star Comics number three, oh, right. which came out in 1940. Okay, so they are real Golden Age heroes that are similar to those heroes today, but they look a lot different. Yes. So what Matt's referencing is uh, something I said a few episodes back when we were talking about the invaders. Uh, Marvel also came up with a superhero team that fought Nazis in the uh, during World War II. The difference is Marvel didn't come up with that idea until the 70s. Right. So the stories were written and created in the 70s and they all took place in the past. Which isn't to say that they didn't have comics in the 40s. They did. We all know it. Right. 
Yeah, I'm just they they were reinventing a past for these characters, very similar to the JSA. They right, they created a shared history that did not really exist. Right. Whereas at DC, that history does actually exist. Excelsior! Oh. <laughs> that is it for THN 686. Next week, get ready for a special THN Turkey Day treat. You'll just have to wait and see what it is. If you want to rap about this week's episode, comics that you are currently reading, comics that you read years ago, or any of the weekly nerdy news that we are following in our nerd news channel on our Discord, hit us up. Our live call-in show, THN, cover to cover. We do it Saturdays at 10.30 Central Time. We want to talk about this new golden age and the return of the JSA because I barely know what's going on, so please help me spell this out, okay? You can watch that broadcast on our Facebook page, but if you want to play along, you got to join our Discord, and you can learn how to chat or talk with us live. And we set you up with something to talk about. We call it the question of the week. That's right. And this week's question is courtesy of Beezer12 via Discord. What's something you're okay with being hypocritical about in terms of comics? For example, I absolutely hate that there are multiple variant and exclusive covers of every book today. But when it comes to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I still got to have the A, B, and retailer incentive covers every time. Tell you what, those variants whip some ass. They do a yeah, nice yeah. job on those. <laughs> so, what's something that, in general, you dislike about comics, except for when it comes to this thing where you think it's okay? Please keep your question of the week suggestions coming. And if you can't make it to Cover to Cover Live, shoot an MP3 to 2EditNerd at gmail.com or leave a message on the THN hotline, that number 402-819-4894. You could be internet famous. Remember, please keep your recorded messages on the shorter side so that we can share the air with all of the live listeners. If you're new to this show and you're good friends with Todd Nock and you are sick of my goddamn opinion, I'm pretty sure you, I have said nice things about him in the past. I just don't love his style. It's a personal thing. And you probably just haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear our entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at TwoHeadedNerd.com. THN is a listener-supported podcast. It would not be possible without the generosity of donors like internet and radio sensation, Mr. Michael Severe. If you like what you hear every week, it is easy to support this show. You can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash twoheadednerd. Michael, I can't help but notice you've never brought me in any of your shows to talk Nebraska football, but you come on my show to talk comics all the time, okay? Two-way street, brother. Let's talk, all right? You can also just make a one-time donation via PayPal because you ain't no dummy. You know the JSA and you know how they work. You don't need no extra. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to Christopher Canwell, who not only had a birthday this week, but he wrapped up his excellent Iron Man run with issue 25, which also hit the stands today. Word to you, Mr. Cantwell. And I'm not going to read the second part because I'm up to date on Iron Man. Are you really? You re- So you read 25 already? I have been reading Iron Man this entire time. I just figured you were way behind, so I made a joke about it. But I apologize. <laughs> I am yeah. actually two issues behind and I need to finish, so... I promise I will catch up and finish. I have absolutely loved this run, though. It's really good. Can't say the same about that Gold Goblin book came out, but watch for my ludicrous speed round review on that. Until next time, true (laughs) believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer certainly isn't going to remember your birthday. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off.